Indeed, the way of faith is beginning to be detailed here in Genesis 12, letting all of us know if you're to be part of the people of God, it means you will be part of the people of God by faith, a faith that Abraham, Abram, our spiritual father, possessed. Now, here's the context of what's happening. We have come out of the story about Babylon, the dispersing of humanity across the entire face of the earth. And now the generations from Noah focus in on one man, focus in on one family, a man named Abram and those who would come from his line. And he is a towering figure in human history, not just in the Bible, but in human history, because all three major religions, Islam and Judaism and Christianity, all consider him the father of their faiths. And now it is through this man that God will reveal his purposes and plans for humanity. My main idea this morning is God has always had a people he reveals his glory to in order to reveal his glory through. God has always had a people he reveals his glory to as he's doing here to Abraham so that he can reveal his glory through. Now there's a lot going on in the text. There's a lot of names and cities and so forth. So I'm going to tell you some of the application up front and then I'm going to weave it in along the way. But I just want to give these up front so you'll know kind of where we're headed. And the first key theme of these three chapters is the one I've already mentioned. It's faith. The way we become part of the people of God is by faith. But secondly, in the text, we're going to see the obedience of faith. We're going to see the fact that faith that's alone, faith that doesn't produce obedience, is a faulty faith. This is what Romans 1 tells, tells us. It says this, through whom we have received grace and apostleship, talking about Jesus, to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all nations. Now, it's vital this morning that we don't get these twisted or get these backwards. Faith leads to obedience. Obedience does not produce in us faith. We're going to see there's nothing commendable that we see in the text about Abram when God chooses him, but once he is a man of faith, it produces in him obedience. Again, the obedience that comes about by faith. Third theme of the text is that God is the initiator of this all. He is the one who acts in salvation. He is the actor. He, he acts on behalf of unworthy people to make them a people worthy of his glory. And then the final one is we see the key theme of the Abrahamic covenant and the mission that is produced from the Abrahamic covenant. God saves this people in order for this people to bless all the peoples of the earth. This is why he has chosen Abram for this purpose. That's, that's why he's being blessed. That's why the church, the people of God in the new covenant, that is why we have been blessed so that we can now be on a mission to be a light to the nations. That's what we see in the great commission. Now, Here's the breakdown of the text. I'm just going to break it down very simply. I'm going to break down chapter 12 and then chapter 13 and 14 together. And in every chapter, we're going to see the promises that God makes to Abraham. And then we're going to see the problems that arise or the obstacles that arise to, to maybe thwart the promises of God. And yet through it all, God will remain faithful to his promises even when his people are unfaithful. He is faithful even when we are faithless. Now, in chapter 12, the promises. God promises Abraham a great name, a great nation, and a promised land. And the problem, the obstacles that arise in chapter 12 are famine and Pharaoh. Let's look at the text again. Look at chapter 12. Here's what Moses writes. Now, the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and I, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So 
Abram went as the Lord had told him and Lot with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran and Abram took Sarah, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all their possessions that they had gathered. We first see the call of God on Abram's life. God, again, takes the initiative, and we see something instructive that carries itself out in the rest of the scriptures, that God creates and sustains a people by his word. This is how it has always been, where he, by the power of his word, created Adam and Eve, who were to be fruitful and multiply. They were to fill the earth with people who bore the image of God, and yet they failed in this task. And now, by the power of his word, he speaks to Abram. He sets him apart, and he speaks into existence this new family, this Israel that will be for him a light to the nations. And this is what he does at Pentecost, as the proclaimed word starts to form, to create, and sustain the church, the people of God, who are now to be a light to the nations, who reverse everything that went wrong at Babel. And just imagine this scene if you can, right? Abram is now asked to leave all that he knows to head out to the unknown. He's asked to leave his country, to leave his family, to leave his father's house. He's just living life and then bam, out of nowhere, God puts a call on his life. He comes to Abram and says, get up, leave it all, land, family, father, and follow me. And as I said, there's nothing in the text to indicate that he is chosen because he is a righteous man. Moses, on the other hand, about Noah said up front that Noah was a righteous man. And we will be told later that Abraham is righteous because he believed, and then it was accredited to him as righteousness, which is massive for us because it tells us how we will be accredited to be righteous through faith. By faith, we will be saved. This is the doctrine of justification or the idea that we'll be made right with God by faith. But at first, we simply see in the text, and this is breathtaking, we simply see in the text that God chose Abram because he chose Abram. By his sheer grace, God chooses Abram. And so it is with us. And this call to leave country and family comes with a blessing. We see the beginnings of what is called the Abrahamic covenant, the three promises again are noted, great name, great nation, and this fact that they will bless all the other families of the earth. And it's fascinating. If you uh, remember what we studied last week, it's fascinating coming out of Babel, this people who wanted to make a name for themselves and God hindered their process, but God promises that he will be the one who makes a name for Abram. He will be the one who creates greatness for somebody else. And God tells Abram that all the other families of the earth will be blessed because of Abram or they will be cursed because of Abram. This is a foreshadowing of what Galatians will tell us. Eternal blessing or eternal curse depends on how you respond to Abraham's offspring. And we'll talk more about that in a minute. And verse 4 seems to me an amazing yet just simple description of a disciple. It's a simple description of example of faithfulness. It simply says of Abram after he hears this call that he did just as the Lord had told him. And immediately he's a blessing to others. He blesses his wife. He blesses his nephew Lot as he takes them with him on this journey that God has for him. Now, the text in verse 5 begins to show us Abram making his way through what will be the promised land. Look at verse 5, the second half of it. And the people that they had acquired in Haran, they set out to go to the land of Canaan. When they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land to the place at Shechem, the Oak of Morah. And that time the Canaanites were in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, to your offspring, I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. 
From there, he moved to the hill country on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent. And with Bethel on the west, the Ai on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. And Abram journeyed on, still going toward the Negev. Abram makes it to the land that ultimately will become his family's land and it'll become Israel's land, and yet it's still occupied by the Canaanites. He has not fully taken the land. That will not happen until later on after Abram is far gone. But Abram immediately displays his devotion to God because he builds an altar and he worships. I love the way it says here in the text. Here's how he worships. He simply builds an altar and then he calls upon the name of the Lord. But now problems arise. Verse 10, it says, There was a famine in the land. So Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was severe in the land. When he was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarai, his wife, I know that you are a woman beautiful in appearance, and when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife, and then they will kill me, but they will let you live. Say you are my sister, that it may go well with me because of you, and that my life may be spared for your sake. When Abram entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw the woman was very beautiful, And when the princes of Pharaoh saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh, and the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. There's a famine in the land, and there should be echoes of something else going on here. This is a a mini version of the Exodus. There's a famine in the land, and this seems to be obviously a problem. And because of this famine, Abram leaves the land that he has been promised, and he heads down to Egypt. And just take note, we need to understand from the beginning, Abraham is certainly not a perfect individual in the text. One of, the, one of the wonderful things about the Bible that can help speak to the veracity or the truthfulness of the Bible is the fact that so often the heroes of the Bible are painted in such a bad light. They're so, the authors are so truthful about even these people who are the, the fathers of their faith, who are the patriarchs of their faith. And so Abram is struggling with the promises of God. He, he's not trusting that God will take care of him even through the famine. And so he begins to try to manipulate events in order to keep the promises going. And then we see this threat to the promise arise, right? Because of the beauty of his wife. And in an attempt to spare his own life, Abraham, Abram tells a half-truth. He tells a lie. He tells them that Sarai is his sister. Now, we'll see this in a couple of weeks. We will learn in Genesis 20 that Sarai is his half-sister. So Abram is telling a half-truth. But brothers and sisters, this is a shameful scene. Abram, who is to protect and care for and provide for his wife, is basically trading her off to, to spare his own life. This certainly threatens the promises of God. He's not trusting what God has told him. He is scheming. He has stopped seeing with eyes of faith. He should have trusted God. God has made just massive promises to him. How can he not realize that God will even preserve him through these smaller obstacles? If God is going to do these massive things through him, he's certainly going to preserve his life in Egypt. But notice how the text puts it, because it's very interesting. Again, you're going to see themes of this and echoes of this later on in the scriptures. But it says that Sarai was taken into Pharaoh's house. As one commentator points out, this is a form of slavery. This is against her will. In exchange, Abram has given lots of cattle. He's, he's given wealth in exchange for his sister. But notice in the text, God does not deal kindly with Pharaoh's actions. And we, again, start to see the promises that have been made, that if you bless Abram, you will be blessed. And if you curse Abram, you will be cursed. You see that in verse 17. It says this, 
the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house, listen to this, with great plagues because of Sarah, Abram's wife. So Pharaoh called Abram and said, what is this you have done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister so that I took her for my wife? Now then, here is your wife, take her and go. And Pharaoh gave men orders concerning him and they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. Notice how many times the text is stressing that this is Abram's wife. And because of Pharaoh's actions in enslaving part of Abram's family, curses, plagues come upon Egypt. That should sound familiar if you know what takes place in the Exodus. And it really, in a sense, Pharaoh immediately says, I'm going to let God's people go. Take your wife back. You guys get out of here. This is exactly what will happen in the Exodus, except for on a smaller scale here. The curses of plagues come upon Pharaoh and his house, and the blessings of plunder and riches come upon the people of God. And so in this first chapter, we see several themes play out. First, again, we see the obedience of faith. We see the life of a disciple. God calls, and and, and Abram leaves everything behind in order to follow God. We need to think about our own commitments this morning. Some of us need to have a renewed commitment to just listen to what God says and to do, follow in obedience when we do. But there might be some in this room who have never made that sort of commitment to God. And for the first time, they need to make a commitment that I will trust you and that I will obey you. Again, it's very clear in the text. Works and obedience will not save you. Only grace alone through faith alone. But a faith that does not produce obedience is a deficient faith. Second, we see God can use anybody. He chooses a pagan named Abram to, again, bring about all the aspects of the blessings of the covenant and the promises that he will give to the world. He uses a pagan as the fountainhead of all who will have faith. I mean, just think about it for our purposes this morning. The next Dwayne Milioni may be hung over this morning and not a Christian, but God in his grace will act on this person's life and act on their behalf, and they will be saved, and then God will use them for his purposes in the world. He will be, by his grace, use them as an instrument for his grace to the rest of the world, and so it is with us as well. Third, trust in the promises of God. We don't have to manipulate events out of fear. Romans 8 is clear for his people. He is working out things for their good. He is working out things for his glory. For his people, even death will not thwart the promises of God. Death will simply usher in the promises of God in ways that we cannot even fully imagine right now. The question out of chapter 13 is simply this this morning. Will we trust and will we obey? You know, there's a wonderful song that speaks to the uh, preserving hand of God. It's a song that we, we likely have sung here a few times called He will hold me fast. And one of the lines goes like this. He will not let my soul be lost. His promises shall last. Listen to this. Bought by him at such cost. He will hold me fast. The song was initially written by a friend of Charles Spurgeon, a lady named Ada. We named our little girl after her because we just see this song as a wonderful reminder of the promise-keeping nature of God. Even when we do not see it, we can trust God never tells us something with his fingers crossed behind his back. He always is faithful to his word, and he always keeps his promises. Now, in chapter 13 and 14, the promises are repeated, specifically promises about the land and how many his offspring will be. But a new problem arises, two of them actually, that be the possessions of Abraham and Lot and also the wickedness of Sodom and Gomorrah. 
So I'm going to read through chapter 13 and just make a few comments about what's happening here. Here's what Moses writes. So Abram went up from Egypt, he and his wife, and all that he had, and lot with him into the Negev. Now Abram was very rich in livestock and silver and in gold, and he journeyed on from the Negev as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning, between Bethel and Ai, to the place where he had made an altar at first. And there again Abram called upon the name of the Lord. And Lot, who went with Abram and also had flocks and herds and tents so that the land could not support both of them dwelling together, for their possessions were so great that they could not dwell together. And there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock at the time the Canaanites and Perizzites were dwelling in the land. Then Abram said to Lot, let there be no strife between you and me. He's trying to squash the quarrel. He says, let there be no strife between you and me, between your herdsmen and my herdsmen, for we are kinsmen, we are family. Is not the whole land before you. Separate yourself from, from me. If you take the left hand, I will take the right. And if you take the right, I will go to the left. And Lot lifted up his eyes and saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt in the direction of Zor. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose for himself all the Jordan Valley and Lot journeyed east. Thus they separated from each other. Abram settled in the land of Canaan while Lot settled among the cities of the valley and moved his tent, and this is key to the text, as far as Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. The Lord said to Abram after Lot had separated from him, here's the promises again, lift up your eyes and look to the place where you are, northward, southward, eastward, westward, for all the land that you see I will give to you and to your offspring forever. Listen to this. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring can also be counted. Arise, walk through the length and breadth of the land for I will give it to you. So Abram moved his tent and came and settled by the oaks of Mamre, which are at Hebron. And there again, he built an altar to the Lord. Some things to note here in the text. The amount of possessions that Abram and Lot have cause a fight, cause a quarrel. In particular, it's a fight between Lot's herdsmen and Abram's herdsmen. And Abram here acts as a peacemaker in the text. He defers to Lot. He, he's trying to squash the strife before it really gets going. He knows the promises of God. He understands the promises of God, and he's clinging to them, so he will let Lot make his choice because he knows he will be blessed Anyway, Abraham perhaps already has glimpses of what the New Testament will tell us, that blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be the ones who will be called children of God. But we also start to see in the text, not just the peacemaking of Abram, we see the, the character issues and the sin of Lot. It's instructive he moves east. It's instructive that he moves toward Sodom, not away from it. We're clued in on that they are already a city of wickedness. This should be danger signs for Lot as he's moving in the direction of Sodom. This should have been a deterrent for Lot. It's instructive for our purposes, right? We are to watch out for sin. We are to flee sin. We've already been told earlier in Genesis that with Cain, it was told that sin is crouching at the door. Christians, we certainly are to be in the world and not of it. But we need to understand that we have to flee sin. We have to put sin to death. With sin, we're not to play with it. We're not to get as close to it as we can to see what happens. I hope this will be instructive for children in the room, for students in the room, but also for adults. This means if certain people or certain places or certain situations cause in you unique temptations to sin, you need to get away from them. Don't move towards it, move away from it. Our enemy 
is a prowling lion seeking who he might devour. Now, at the end of the chapter, God reaffirms his promises to Abram by way of reminder. And then again, in an act of worship, Abram constructs an altar. God is kind to remind us of his promises. And when we're reminded of his promises, our response should be to worship. That's what most people say. That's the definition of worship. The definition of worship is, is seeing the revelation of God, seeing God reveal himself and who he is and what he has done for us. And then us responding in kind, us responding in song, us responding with our lives. That is what worship is. And we see a picture of it here because Abram builds an altar when he sees and hears the revelation of God. So some questions of application from chapter 14, uh, sorry, from chapter 13. Are you a peacemaker or are you a brawler? Are you somebody who gets easily bitter, easily resentful? Are you like Ryan in the office, you keep a list of people who have wronged you? Or are you someone who seeks to live at peace with all men? After all, again, listen to the scriptures. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be children of God. Second, we see this playing out with Abram. Do you hold tightly to the things of earth and loosely to the things of God? Here, Abram is holding very tightly to the promises of God and very loosely to the things that are his. One pastor points out as instructive, he lives in tents but builds altars. Talking about the transient nature of what he has with tents, with the permanent nature of what he has with altars. And this pastor just simply says, we need to figuratively, figuratively be those who, who pitch tents and those who build altars. We should hold very loosely to the things of this earth and very tightly to the things of the world to come. Now, finally, chapter 14, and I'm going to summarize the first few verses, because if you read down through there, I don't want to embarrass myself trying to say all these names. And so check it out on your own time. But basically, verses 1 through 10 is simply this. There's a war that breaks out between four kings and five kings. And in the midst of this war, Lot is captured. And he's captured because of his foolishness. Look what verse 11 says. So the enemy took all the possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their provisions and went their way. They also took Lot, the son of Abram's brother, who, listen to this, he hasn't just moved towards Sodom. He is now in Sodom, who was dwelling in Sodom and his possessions and went their way. He played with sin. He played with foolishness. He has now moved his family into the city of wickedness. And because of his foolishness, he is captured by these enemy kings. Again, I think this should be instructive for us this morning. And again, I won't speak to students in the room, but also to adults. Being in the wrong place with the wrong people, so often the wrong thing will happen. And that's what happens with Lot. Now in the text, somebody escapes, somebody has been taken captive, escapes, and he comes and he tells Abram about Lot's uh, plight. He tells him about what's happening. Pick up the story in verse 14. Here's what it says. When Abram heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive, he led forth his trained men, born in his house, 318 of them, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. He divided up his forces against them by night. So it's a night attack. He and his servants defeated them and pursued them to Hobai in the north of Damascus. Then he brought back all the possessions and also brought back his kinsmen, Lot, with his possessions and the women and the people. Back when I was in middle school, I went to a Carolina Mudcats game. We, we were living here, I was like, I think 12 or 13 at the time. And for whatever reason, we were sitting in the family section of the Mudcats game, but there were these older men 
they were probably enjoying too many beverages. And so they start yelling at us and cussing at us because we won't stand up and do the wave. Now, you can yell at me about a lot of things. Not doing the wave is not one of those things. And so I'm sitting there and I'm actually terrified of what's happening until I realized sitting next to me is my uncle, who was a former undercover police officer, could bench press 500 pounds. He was huge, 260 pounds. And as soon as he stood up, they sat down. And that, in so much of a greater way, is what's happening here. Abram sees that his nephew is in trouble, and he goes after his nephew. He goes after to step in as a loving patriarch and uncle. He goes after his wayward nephew. He heads off with only 318 men. This should be echoes of the Gideon story. He is fearless here. He knows the might of God. He knows the promises of God. And so he sets off. We now see Abram becoming a warrior king and the rescuer of his family as he defeats the kings of the earth and returns triumphant with his kinsmen. And the grace of God is displayed to Lot. Though he had been foolish, God is gracious to send a rescuer for him. Brothers and sisters, we should hear echoes of the gospel there. This is what has happened for us. God has seen us in our foolishness. God has seen us in our wickedness. God has seen us in our sin. And God has sent somebody to rescue us out of the midst of that. And there are also hints of the ministry of reconciliation in the text. We're told in Galatians, brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, listen to this, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. And then the warning, keep watch on yourself, lest you also be tempted. Final part of the text, we're introduced to this strange character named Melchizedek. Here's what the text says. After his return from the defeat of Ketelomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shava, that is the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was a priest of the God most high. He blessed Abram and said, blessed be Abram by the God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be the God most high who's delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abraham gave him a tenth of everything. And the, listen to this. The king of Sodom said to Abram, give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say I've made Abraham rich. I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me. Let Aner and Eshkol and Mamre take their share. This is a tremendous scene where we are induced to one of the most interesting people in the Bible, Melchizedek. And Melchizedek literally could be translated king of righteousness. We saw that in Hebrews. It was read earlier. And we are also told he is the king of Salem. He is the king of Jerusalem, which means he is the king of peace. And he blesses Abram. Interestingly, this priest of the most high God blesses Abram by doing what? He blesses him by giving him bread and by giving him wine. If you want to bless me, I always accept gift cards for queso or steak. And so I'll be happy to be blessed by you. But it's theologically rich. He blesses Abram by giving him bread and by giving him wine. And this great high priest pronounces a blessing on Abram. He states some deep theological truths about God most high, namely that the earth is his and that he is the one who delivers his people. He is the one who delivers enemies into the hands of his people. Abraham responds again. He, 
He responds well to what, he is being, what is being revealed to him. He responds to this blessing by giving a tithe. 10% of what he has, he gives to Melchizedek. It's another act of worship because the tithe is Abraham confirming he agrees with the great theological truths that Melchizedek has just stated. He agrees that God is the possessor of heaven and of earth. And then in contrast, Abram refuses the blessings of the king of Sodom. He shows his devotion to God that he has lifted up his hand. He says, lifted up his hand to the Lord. And so he will refuse the gifts of this wicked king. He turns down the offer of the plunder. He basically says, I will not let it be said that you have enriched me in any way. Abram is showing here, as compared to what he did in Egypt, he is showing here that he trusts in God, he trusts and depends on God to make for him a great nation and to make him a blessing. He does not trust in the wickedness of human kings. A couple applications in this final chapter. First, and we, it's said so often in Christian circles, but think about what it really means. We are blessed in order to be a blessing. We are saved to be a light to others. Abram here actually literally goes out and rescues the perishing. And that's how we will be a blessing as well. We will share this wonderful, life-changing news of the gospel that will rescue people from their perishing and will undertake this ministry of reconciliation. Second, we also see that Abram is being bold for the Lord. He's being bold like men like Michael Sattler. Abram is fearless in his mission because he knows the promises of God and the same should be true for us. So I think an important question this morning is, what are you currently doing in your life that is bold on behalf of the Lord? What are you doing that is bold for the sake of his mission for us to be a light to all nations, to bless all the families of the earth? And so this part of the story ends. Interestingly, we are left with this mysterious king of Jerusalem who is also a high priest. In fact, an Israelite will not sit on the throne of Jerusalem until David will enter in and sit on the throne. And then in Psalm 110, David will write of a future Melchizedek. One who would defeat the kings of the earth, one who would free his people from their slavery, one who would make his people righteous or holy, a priest in the order of Melchizedek. And when is that fulfilled? Because the truth is, this morning, we need a better rescuer than Abram. One who can rescue us from our enemies of sin and death. One who can forgive us when we fail. One who can succeed in our place. Give us the power to walk in obedience. Brothers and sisters, thankfully, one greater than Abram has come. The promised one of Genesis 3, the, the seed of the woman, the seed of Abraham, the promised one of Genesis 12, the man of faithfulness who even as he is staring down what is going to become of him at the cross, he stays faithful. He says to his father, not your will, not my will, but your will be done. There will be another in the line of Abram whose name will be made great. In fact, we are told in Philippians that at his name, just at his name, every knee will 
bow. Knees on earth and knees in heaven and knees under the earth. There will be another in the line of Abram who will lead his people into the promised land where they will be safe from their enemies forevermore. A better Abram who will not pawn off his wife to save himself, but instead will set his face like flint to Jerusalem where he will drown in his own blood to purchase her and to redeem her and to rescue her. There will be one who leads an even greater exodus as the New Testament tells us he will plunder the strong man's house and take his good he will leave captivity captive and he will give gifts to men. There will be another king who will be a true peacemaker. He will be the prince of peace, the true king of peace. And we are told that this offspring, this Jesus of Nazareth, who will be a priest forever, a, a king priest forever in the order of Melchizedek, that he will be the guarantor of a better covenant. A king who he promises that he will have power as a king to rescue us and he will have love as a priest to intercede on our behalf. And this king will serve us by giving us, as we will just take in just a minute, he will give us bread and he will give us fruit of the vine. And we know he can do anything he says he can do. We know he can free us from lifelong slavery to sin. He can make a people out of us that will bless all the nations of the earth because Jesus of Nazareth has conquered death itself, our final enemy. And as we've already sung this morning, he will by his good pleasure lead us safely home. If you're in the room and you're not a Christian, your future hinges upon what you do with Jesus. When it's talking about here in Genesis 12, those who bless Abram will be blessed and those who curse Abram will be cursed. Galatians tells us very specifically that's going to come down to one offspring of Abram. It's not offsprings. It's one offspring, Jesus of Nazareth. And how you respond to the true seed of Abraham will determine whether you enter into eternal blessing or you enter into eternal curse. And so my prayer this morning is that you will hear the call of God, that he has made a way for you to be right with him through this king priest, through this Jesus of Nazareth, where in him you can find a righteousness that is not your own. All you have to do is repent of your sin and follow him. And he will be faithful and just to forgive you and cleanse you of all unrighteousness. And believers, what should our response be today? Well, mainly, I just pray that we will be encouraged in the faith. And that we will understand that it is not the power of our faith, but the object of our faith that will bring us safely home. And so I want to conclude returning to what I would call the end of Sattler's story of faith in this life. And I do so in order to encourage you because the sons and daughters of Abraham know that no matter what happens to us in this life, it is simply the beginning of one in which every chapter will be better than the one before it. And here's what Spellman says about Sattler. He was then driven to the place of execution where five more times the glowing iron tongs were applied to his body, ripping out his flesh. Eyewitnesses recount that during these procedures, Sattler continually prayed for those persecuting him and urged others to do the same. Just before he was plunged into the fire, Sattler echoed the testimony of martyrs throughout Christian history as he cried out, Almighty eternal God, thou who art the way and the truth, since I have not been taught otherwise by anyone, so by thy help I will testify this day to the truth, and I will seal it with my blood. After he was thrown into the fire with a small sack of gunpowder tied around his neck, 
when the ropes that bound Sattler's arms were burned up, he lifted both of them with his first two fingers on each hand outstretched. Listen to this. This was the dramatic gesture that was a symbol that he and his brothers had prearranged so that Sattler could signal to them that he was faithful. Even unto death. Eight days after Sattler's grisly execution, his wife, Margaretha, was put to death by drowning. It's interesting how he says it, experiencing her third baptism. When she was offered her freedom by the wife of the imperial regent, Margaretha persisted in saying the crown she wanted was one her Lord Jesus would give. And listen to this, Wilhelm recounts that she accepted and suffered death with great joy and with strong faith. You see, it's so true, brothers and sisters. Father Abraham had many sons and daughters. I am one of them. I hope you are as well. And if you are in a minute, in response to what we have seen about God and his word, and in response to what we've seen about Jesus in this great salvation that he has offered to us, may we worship him by faith. May we trust and obey. He's certainly worthy of it. Let's pray. Father, now as we turn our attention to the Lord's Supper, we're thankful for the proclamation of the gospel to our ears, and Father, we're thankful for the proclamation of the gospel to our eyes. Father, I pray for those in this room that need to be encouraged by the preaching of the word, that they would be encouraged, and those who need to be challenged would be challenged. Father, do pray for anybody in this room that doesn't know Jesus, that the singing of the gospel, the preaching of the gospel, the taking of the Lord's Supper would compel them they would see that Christ has set his affections upon sinners like us and he is certainly able to redeem us. Father, now would you even use the Lord's Supper to transform us from one degree of glory to another? Would you sanctify us this morning by all the means of grace that you've given to your church? And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.